Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 209. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me, shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. We are excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Kyle Sermonara. He's the co-founder at Fundamental Global Investors. I've been following Kyle for a while now, and this interview was actually a few months in the making, and I was extremely excited to chat with him about Fundamental Global's investing strategy, particularly in microcap stocks. Co-founded with Joe Moglia, former chairman and CEO of TD Ameritrade, Fundamental Global is a private partnership focused on long-term strategic holdings, and we discussed just what that means, joining public company boards, and really the, the difference between activism and suggestivism. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 209 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Kyle Sermonara. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. 
Stream was built by Mosaic and unlike any other transcript libraries, Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.com. Welcome back to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is someone who has been running in the microcap circles now for a little bit. Uh, this has been a few months in the making as well, and I'm really excited to have him on here today. We're going to separate this pod from some of the other interviews we did it, just in the name pronunciation. you know. So I'm excited to, to welcome on the show today, Kyle Chermanada. Or for those who know, Kyle Sermonara. He is the uh, co-founder at Fundamental Global Investors. Kyle, thanks so much for joining me today, man. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Dude, Appreciate you, you having me on. You're making me want to get like a chicken parmesan actually right after this, to be honest with that, with that, <laughs> how I pronounce that. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is our first time doing an interview together. Uh, I've listened to a few of the interviews that you've done in the past, uh, some great ones on great shows, you know, but for those who may have missed those interviews or uh, haven't had a chance to meet you yet and learn your background, you know, where, where did your passion for investing begin? So, you know, I, I've been investing my whole career. I, uh, I started investing in college and uh, ended up uh, being lucky enough to get a uh, position at T. Rowe Price early on. So right out of college, I went to work for Leg Mason. And then uh, about two years into that, uh, went to work for T. Rowe Price, uh, got a, a, a great position, uh, you know, right after the, the dot-com bubble burst uh, in the late 1990s, uh, went to work for T. Rowe Price uh, in you know, 2000, 2001. And, um, you know, what was, was pretty neat, like CNBC was just starting to get, uh, you know, going in the late 1990s. And, um, you know, a lot of the portfolio managers at T.R. Price were, were sort of becoming uh, superstars on CNBC back then. And, uh, you know, I was young. I was 21, 22 years old, just out of college and, and got to work with many of them uh, right out of college. So, um, you know, I remember... Uh, early on, uh, you know, as a 21 or 22 year old being, uh, you know, recommending stocks to people who, you know, a year or two earlier uh, was, was, you know, idolizing on, on, uh, you know, watching them on CNBC and talking about stocks. And then all of a sudden I'm recommending stocks to them and we're buying, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of stocks based on my recommendation, you know, as a 22, 23, 24 year old uh, was, was, was really neat. And, Got to, you know, I was, I was in the financial services sector, um, was focusing on initially on, on, uh, lending companies and then some of the big Wall Street investment banks and, uh, migrated towards, uh, some of the, uh, financial technology companies, got involved in companies like Ameritrade and E-Trade and Charles Schwab. And then over time, uh, the exchanges became hot and the, the, uh, MasterCard and Visa came public. So, Got to invest in a whole bunch of really neat companies. Uh, ultimately, ran you know, several billion dollars when I was at at T. Rowe Price. Got to work with uh, Rob Sharps, who is now the uh, CEO of, of T. Rowe Price, or just he's been named as the, the CEO. He's the president and CIO, and I think he's becoming the CEO in the next few weeks. And uh, just was an amazing experience. Uh, 
Uh, after that, I went on to work for Steve Cohen, um, who uh, was was also an equally uh, amazing experience. Worked with some great people at, at SAC, which is now Point Seventy Two, and uh, it was uh, a great way to get my career started. I mean, they're just, we could do like three hours just on your, your career before joining, uh, co-founding Fundamental Global Investors alone. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure everybody, I, I think even in the previous podcast, you've talked about that experience at, at, at now what's called Point 72. So love, love to hear maybe some of the lessons learned uh, from there that maybe you've now been able to, to use at, at FGI. So, you know, Tira Price and Point72 are really interesting contrast because people, you know, think of like, how could you have spent time at Tira Price and then spent time at Point72 because they're two very different types of, of firms. Tira Price gave me the opportunity to learn how to think about things over multiple year periods, three, five years. Like they don't really think about the quarters and they don't think about, um, you know, investing over the next few days or weeks or months is not something in the DNA of Tiro Price, like they take positions for long periods of time. And that's really how like my investment philosophy got, got started. I, I did really deep fundamental work. When I got to uh, working with Steve Cohen and, and, and the, the uh, team at Point72, what is now Point72, uh, it's, it's such a different philosophy. And it really helped me think about how, like why stocks move the way they move, um, you know, how important um, you know, short-term performances along with, you know, uh, you know, it's not just, you know, delivering uh, fundamental performance over multiple years. You also have to perform as a public company over the short run. And, uh, you know, it, it really helped me understand like how people think about things, you know, in the short run, quarter by quarter. It doesn't mean that, that you know, public companies should plan for the quarter or plan for, you know, data points, but that's just, it, it really gave me an understanding of like data point, uh, like how important data points are to investors, um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, faster money investors and, and uh, you know, got to understand like why stocks move the way they move. And it uh, was, was, was an absolutely great experience working with, with Steve and the team there. Um, you know, I, I joined in 2007 um, you know, we, we had a large position, uh, actually one of my largest positions was Ameritrade, uh, in 2007. So we, we joined, uh, we, we did very well in Ameritrade, uh, in 2007. And then, um, in late 2007, E-Trade actually, uh, was one of the first companies that, uh, came into trouble with the financial crisis in November, 2007. You might remember Ken Griffin and Citadel bailed out E-Trade with a multi-billion dollar bailout. Uh, uh, you know, buying out their collateralized debt obligations uh, for like 20 cents on the dollar. And, you know, we basically, um, I, I, you know, we're, we're very early on in, in understanding what was going on with CDOs. We, you know, in, in late 2007 and, um, you know, spent the next uh, you know, two or three months building out, uh, you know, a thought process behind how to approach the financial system. Because if E-Trade had a problem, in their CDO book, like they weren't the only one. So uh, 2008 was a great year for us, uh, at least for, you know, in the financial sector, uh, we did a lot of great work, uh, you know, you know in, on our team um, and, uh, you know, was, 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 was great to learn how to short and spend time thinking about not just buying stocks, but how to, how to bet against them as well. Um, so 
uh, I had a great 2008, uh, really learned a lot in 2008 and, and, uh, ended up sitting, you know, sort of back to back with Steve, uh, you know, about three, three or four feet away from him for, for a few years. And it was, it was a great experience. Listen, I have to ask, you know, now that he owns the Mets, I, we were talking offline, you grew up in Hershey Penn, in Hershey Penn. I mean, does that make you, are you, does that make you more Pittsburgh pirates or, or Phillies? And like, how Hershey is that? Is like, yeah, it's, it's like dead set in the middle of Pennsylvania. It's, you know, maybe a little bit closer to Philadelphia. So as a kid, I would go, you know, I, I, I equally went to uh, uh, Phillies games and to, uh, to Pirates games. But, um, you know, I, w- I grew up more of a Pirates fan than a Phillies fan. Uh, but, um, you know, I have to admit, I've, I've started to uh, really like the Mets uh, now that Steve owns them. So. Hey, man, they just made a nice hire the other day. Yeah, I, I like, I like yeah, that show, Walter. Yeah. I, think that, was, I yeah, think that was the right move. Yeah. Bring, bring a little stability yeah. there. But, you know, I want to go on one tangent before we get to, to FGI. And, and you brought up your your interest in fintech and how you really focus in that sector um, pretty pretty early on in your career. Um, it, it's changed and is moving so fast. I mean, it's probably one of, if not the hottest sector right now. You know, you're seeing some of the valuations, you're seeing some of the, the, the money flows into, into some of these deals right now. You know, how would you say it's it's changed, you know, and, and you know, since you started covering it in the last, uh, let's say last two years, it's just been going nuts, Robin Hood and all that stuff. So, you know, 20 years ago, um, you know, FinTech was not quite what it is today. Uh, it's really sort of evolved over the last 10, you know, 10 years or so. I think if you go back 20 years ago, um, fintech was much more focused on payments, like Mastercard and Visa when they came public. Um, you know, there was sort of a group of companies that were more focused on payments, uh, credit card processing. Um, you know, Ameritrade and E-Trade, uh, like in the late 1990s, there was a like an e-brokerage space and and some e-finance spaces, but um, you know they sort of got grouped in with the financial services sector during the sort of 2001 to 2013, 14, 15 period. So the financial services sector, like I I spent most of my time like analyzing these companies as though they were financial services companies uh, rather than sort of getting caught up in the, they are like super high multiple businesses. Like I I understand why people have done that now. Um, which is why like we, we, we didn't get overly carried away in the multiples that some of the, uh, these companies have gotten, you know, to tr- trading. Like, I think, um, you know, FinTech, uh, FinTech's really important. Like the banking system, like the traditional banks and the traditional insurance companies and traditional brokerage companies have, uh, you know, they serve a, cer- a really important purpose. They work with, you know, much larger accounts and they, um, you know, you're, you're probably not going to plop, uh, uh, you know, a hundred billion dollars uh, deposit with a with a fintech company. Um, you know, they're much you know, generally smaller accounts and you know, more driven by retail uh, you know, customers. But um, I, I think that that fintech has really revo- revolutionized financial services. They've made um, you know they they've offered much better products and services. And I think you're seeing a convergence of the banks are starting to think about like offering better technology and better services to their customers. But, but the reality is, is that um, the bigger financial services companies generally uh, like to focus on the much bigger accounts. They focus on, you know, like if you're a wealth management account, they're going to focus on 
you know, a 10 or 20 or $30 million and above account. If you're a depository account, they're focusing on bigger accounts. If you're a lending relationship, they're focusing on bigger relationships. Um, you know, certainly you can get a credit card from a smaller, uh, you know, a, a, from a traditional bank, but, uh, there is a, there is a, sec, you know, a large segment of the population that is not getting the types of services uh, that they would traditionally want. And that's why like the Robin Hoods have sort of evolved. And that's why the, um, you know, the Ameritrades and the E-Trades and the, you know, those types of companies were able to grow so fast and take market share from, um, you know, from the traditional brokerage firms because people didn't want to pay, you know, back then um, people were paying two, $300 a trade uh, to trade at, at, at some of the bigger firms. And it didn't make sense. Now you can trade for free. Right. And, uh, yeah, and you can trade for free everywhere now. You can trade for free at right. Bank of America. And JP. Yeah. But, um, so it's, I, I think we owe that to financial technology that they've sort of made financial services products and, you know, more readily available and cheaper for everyone. Um, you know, whether people like or dislike the companies, um, that's, that's to be debated, but there's no doubt that financial technology has made better products and services and, 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 and cheaper prices for everyone. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. This is going to sound like a classic CNBC question or Fox Business question, but like, you still think we're early innings in fintech innovation and stuff, or are we starting to kind of see a bit of parity um, or, or maybe over frothiness? I don't know. I go back and forth in my head sometimes when I see some of the products and services out there that on one hand, I'm thinking like, wow, this was definitely needed and doing a great job. But then you start looking at some of the business models and you're like, hmm, like what, what will eventually survive from this? Like, I'm not totally sure. And if maybe they're just riding the wave right now, getting the funding so that they can get through the wave. I, I don't know. What, what do you think? I think, I think we're not in the early innings anymore. Like, I think we've gotten through a lot of, of the early innings. Um, there's, it dep- I guess it depends what you're talking about. Like if you're talking about um, you know, blockchain, there's probably still some, early inning opportunities on blockchain. There's probably, you know, blockchain is, is there's a, a huge opportunity on blockchain to, if you just look at like transfer agency or, or like other things like that, that like our, our entire um, back office of our brokerage, you know, firms need to be like reinvented using blockchain. And I think some, you know, some of the larger Twitter accounts have, have talked about this, you know, extensively. You've seen, you've seen uh, all the way. Sorry, yeah. don't mean to interrupt. Like I could not yeah. agree with you more on that point. So like, I think a company like T Zero is doing some pretty interesting things, and like, I think they're the only one doing it, and it really hasn't been adopted as much as it should be. So I really find, you know, companies like T Zero interesting. Um, the you know, on the other side of the spectrum, um, 
you know, do we need another robo advisor? Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of them, right? So um, like, and you can get a, you know, like rebalancing into 20 different ETFs is probably at this point, you know, whether you're buying these 20 ETFs or these 20 ETFs, like the S&P 500 and, and a high yield bond fund and a treasury bond fund. And you know, there's, if you're doing it in sizable ETFs, um, quite frankly, I'm not sure that we need another one of those options. I know. I, I could not agree with, with that more. I think, I believe I just talked about this with, with Michael Green on, on a podcast out here not that long ago, talking about how blockchain could change up some of the back office public company stuff in the back. I mean, listen, you're, you're chairman of a couple of these and I'm a board member. You know what some of these costs are with, on the service provider side where it's really restrictive you know, when companies maybe want to consider going public a little earlier to ca- access capital markets and then they see a bill of like, oh, cool, it's going to cost me, what's that number again? Was that 200K just off the bat <laughs> to be public? Like, mm-hmm. wh- like there's there clearly something needs to change Like because that's just ridiculous. Well, the costs are high, but not it's not only just the cost, it's also just how inefficiently, yeah. you know, it's, it's managed. Like it's, it's hard to track your shareholders. It's hard to, you know, like, there's so much inefficiency in the, in the back office right now. Yeah. Especially when you're considering like, you know, if you're wanting to just see a noble list or anything like, like all of that is just, it's, it's just wild. It's just absolutely wild. Mm -hmm. But so we'll, we'll come back, you know, we might come back to some of this stuff because I think I really wanted to cover that with you because it's just, it's been one of those things where you just, you're, it's like you're getting hammered over the head almost every day with like a new FinTech product or service that, you know, yeah, you want you're willing to try anything that might give you an edge, especially as a smaller retail investor. Um, but it seems like there's been a lot, and and I, I yeah, I, yeah, it's just it's been a lot of stuff. So it's been kind of interesting getting the the, the feel of things. Oh, I agree. Yeah, but okay. So I I, I want to get to FGI. So um, you actually just posted a great article on Substack talking about um, the story of how you met Joe Moglia, uh, who how, uh, co-founded uh, Fund- Fundamental Global Investors with you. So love to hear that story of how you met him, and then you know just starting this venture that you're you're in this journey you're on right now. Yeah, and I started I started the Substack because people like I get a lot of questions, and I was just like, well you know, at some point, is there a better way to just have things out there than, you know, answering the same question again and again. So um, the, um, you know, if you go to fundamentalglobal.com, there, the story is on, uh, you know, if you click on Substack, you can, you can read it. But generally, um, so I met Joe back in 2001. As I mentioned, I was an analyst at Pure Price. One of the first sectors I followed was the online brokers. It was post.com bubble bursting. Um, I kid you not, back then, people literally talked about how uh, people would never trade online again back in 2001. Um, that was sort of the debate, like people were going to trade with full service brokers. They were not going to trade with online brokers. Uh, there were 30 or 40 online brokers at the time of, of substantial scale. And Joe Moglia, who had sort of risen to the top of Merrill Lynch in the, the late 1990s, uh, was 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 did not take the, uh, was not give, uh, given the opportunity to become the CEO of Merrill Lynch in the late 1990s and uh, was offered the position as CEO of Ameritrade in 2001, uh, left uh, Merrill Lynch, um, you know, from being like the number two or three guy at Merrill Lynch and um, came to Ameritrade when it had a $700 million market cap. So 
you know, was a small company. It's hard to imagine Ameritrade is a $700 million market cap now, but um, back then it was a small, you know, company with a website and they traded, you know, they traded online for something like $19.99 a trade. They did stocks and, and options. And, um, and it had risen to fame, you know, in the, in the 1990s, it had been a huge performing stock because, you know, it was kind of like the Robin Hood of the 1990s. Uh, but by by 2001, it was it was financially troubled. Uh, they you know they were not making money. They were losing money, uh, so valuing it was challenging, um, and uh, it needed it needed a lot of change. So Joe came in when the stock was something like three or four dollars a share. I met with him shortly after he joined. He he had a great relationship with T. R. Price, uh, thanks to his position at Merrill Lynch. He asked for a meeting with whoever was going to cover the stock. No one wanted to cover the stock. I, I very much wanted to cover the stock as, as an analyst and, and, and a portfolio manager and, um, and, and sort of made the case for why this was an interesting investment. Joe and I met for several hours uh, in 2000, late 2001 in, in T. Rose uh, headquarters. Uh, you know, back then, no one came to the meeting. It was just the two of us in a conference room talking for hours about you know, what he was going to do with the company and, and all the opportunities. And there were 30 some competitors and the industry really needed to consolidate to two or three. And, and, and he, he really didn't care if, if he had to sell, you know, next year, he would sell uh, as long as he did what was right for shareholders. And, but he thought that, you know, he could go and merge, you know, 10 of these together or 20 of these together. And, and the opportunity to cut costs was huge. So, we, we, I spent a lot of time on, on the idea, recommended it to portfolio managers. Uh, we, we had an analyst run fund that was something like 10 or $20 billion, uh, a huge analyst run fund. So we, I made it my largest position in the analyst run fund. Um, and, uh, over time we became their largest outside shareholder at, at Tiro Price. And, and, um, you know, he bought Daytech, he bought, uh, national discount brokers, uh, basically eliminated 100% of the cost of those companies, kept something like 90-some percent of the revenue. Uh, and, um, you know, fast forward to 2004, the summer of 2004, the trading volume slowed down and, and, um, and you know, the stock was under a little bit of pressure. You know, imagine, you know, being, you know, I, I, I had some really uh, great picks uh, in, in 2003-04 uh, coming out of, uh, the stock market crash, uh, like some of the exchanges and, and so on. But uh, Ameritrade was one of the ones that I really had made a bet on in a big way. And it had come under pressure because trading volumes were weak in the summer of uh, four. And at the same time, uh, TD Bank was was pushing for, you know, further consolidation. Um, Ameritrade had inter- integrated uh, the Daytech acquisition completely. And, and I, I, I really just started becoming annoying to Ameritrade and saying, like, you really need to, 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 to talk to TD Bank. Uh, you know, so much so that I think, you know, pretty much everyone in the industry knew about this. Like, I, like I talked to anyone that would listen to me, uh, you know, every, every large buy side firm uh, and, uh, you know, all, all the, without naming names, like all the big buy side firms knew about it. And we were all sort of uh, of the view that this should happen. Uh, I ended up writing a letter to the board of Ameritrade and saying, like, I'd, I'd really like to have a conversation about this. And uh, in February 2005, I ended up presenting to their board on on uh, why I thought consolidation would would make a lot of sense for them, um, why I thought TD Waterhouse was the perfect uh, you know, combination, and 
that summer, uh, in, in, I think June or July of 2005, they announced the combination, the stock, which, uh, you know, shortly before that had been trading at something like nine, $10 per share. Um, I think got halted and opened it. I don't know, maybe $18 a share, uh, $17, $18 a share and traded the whole way up to $26 a share. They paid a $6 dividend. Um, and, uh, yeah, that deal closed. And then right after that, Joe announced that he wanted to become a football coach again. So he had been a football coach and, and, you know, he en- ended up leaving uh, after the integration and uh, he, he stayed on as chairman, but he ended up leaving the CEO position uh, and going to Coastal Carolina University to take, a, you know, he, he did a, a few uh, uh, intern football coaching jobs at like University of Nebraska for a couple of years to learn how to be a football coach again and went to coastal Carolina. And during that time, I was, I was, uh, interested in starting my own firm. We, uh, he and I had become like the closest of friends at that point. Uh, you know, thanks to all the different things that had happened with, uh, Ameritrade and we sort of had huge success, like through, you know, people questioning, you know, how will Ameritrade be a good stock? And like, I, I sort of stuck with it and, uh, you know, was, was, I think very influential in helping some of those things happen. And, uh, you know, by 2012, uh, we, we agreed to start Fundamental Global together. And, um, at this point, Fundamental Global is, is, uh, the majority of the capital is, is Joe's and, and my, my family capital, uh, Mowgli and Sermonary Capital. And, and, uh, we have a few, uh, uh, sort of relatives and, and friends that have invested with us. We, uh, we just, uh, have bought some, uh, Microcaps. I have, you know, besides my primary residence and some cash and a car and a pontoon boat, I've got 100% of my net worth in in uh, Panama Global and and the stocks that we own. Absolutely. Thank Thank you for sharing that whole story. And that was that was fantastic. So yeah. I, so so he was, is he still coaching at, at the Shauna Claire's or 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 is he since not, not anymore? But Coastal Carolina Shauna Claire's, by the way, for anybody, the Shauna Claire's their their mascot. So just in case anybody did. Yeah. So in 2018, um, he, he had some health issues that were uh, publicly disclosed and he stepped down uh, from the head coaching job. He's still the uh, executive. Um, he, he's, he's fine, by the way. Uh, but he, uh, he stepped down as, um, uh, as the head coach, uh, recruited his successor and uh, brought in a fabulous uh, new coach uh, who's probably one of the hottest uh, uh, football coaches in, in football right now. Um, uh, who, who's done a fantastic job and he is, he's the, um, uh, the chairman of the athletic department. So the football coach reports to him and he, you know, he's responsible for all of the, uh, athletic programs at, at Coastal Carolina and is also, I think, executive advisor to the president of the university. So nice. yeah, when you go to Coastal Carolina, like, you know, his, his face is on the, the football stadium. And I think they've named a few different buildings there, you know, after you know, the Joe Moglia uh, field house or I, I forget what, what the different buildings are, but there's, he's really uh, a big deal in, in at Coastal now, which Very is cool. a, a pretty nice, it's a, it's a really nice campus and a nice school. Very they, cool. They've done a great job. Very cool. All right. Well then let's, let's, yeah. let's shift to, to FGI now, you know, um, as you mentioned, you know, the, the company owns, owns a few microcaps in the portfolio. You sit as the, as chairman on uh, a few of those boards as well as a board member. Um, so before we get into some of the nitty gritty there, what would you say is the firm's general investing philosophy and how did that lead you then to microcaps? Yep. So, 
you know, it's generally, um, I think most people would characterize, characterize what we do as uh, like value with a catalyst. Um, but um, you know, it's not like in the traditional sense of like deep value. Um, you know, one of the things we've tried to evolve to is growing companies with, you know, good management teams. Like we, we originally uh, were probably more towards like the Graham and Dodd style, uh, you know, cigar butt um, style investing. And I, and I think very similar to, you know, other investors who have done cigar butt investing, what you really learn is, is that it's really hard and you get, you know, one puff at the, the cigar and uh, it's better to uh, invest in growing companies with, with management teams that, that are going to do well. So we've evolved that from, um, and, you know, we still are very value conscious in terms of price that we pay, but uh, we do like to be involved in the companies that we're, we're invested in. So there isn't a company that we've invested in where we haven't had some significant role in either structuring the investment or on the board or, or, or in some way. So every single one of the investments we're involved in, um, we either are a board member or a senior advisor to the company or, or some type of role where we put the, you know, we helped structure the investment. Like uh, we, there's a company in Toronto uh, that we helped put together called Green First Forest Products. That was actually a, a micro cap, you know, $10 million shell in, in, in Canada that we basically merged assets into. I'm actually no longer on the board of the company because I thought uh, another Twitter follower, ignore a narrative, uh, Mike Mitchell would be a better board member. He was a, a huge shareholder. Um, you know, he owned, you know, something like 5 million shares of the stock. We, we own, uh, we own you know, something like 20, 25 million shares, but we thought that Mike, who was personally involved, he, you know, he could really spend a lot of his time uh, on, um, you know, on the company uh, would be a better, you know, representative. Like he was really obsessed with, with lumber and really obsessed with Greenfirst. I thought that even though we were really involved in putting the deal together, I thought he would be a better board member. I was the chairman of the company and, and we were given uh, the opportunity to have, uh, you know, a few board seats. And I just, I, I made the case for why Mike would be a better board member than, than me going forward. And, and we put him in place there. So. Very cool. So tell me about this idea for the, for, for when you're assessing a potential new investment and do you go in with that mindset that you, I mean, would you describe yourself as an activist, a suggestivist or activist, but like on more of the chiller side, I, you know, there's so many descriptions for, for folks that, that like to not just make an investment, but also take an active role in the business. So how would you describe yourself? And was that something that you knew going in when starting FGI, that that was how you and Joe wanted to, to go about doing this? Mm -hmm. So, what I've learned is, is that, so I, I was, I, in some ways I've been an activist in the past, like I've run proxy fights. Um, I, you know, I don't like, there's easier ways to do things than the way we've done them in the past. And we, we what happens is that w once you've done this 13, 14, 15 times, you, you look back on them, you evolve and you change the way you do things because the first time you do it, it's like, you're naive and young and, and stupid and, and, um, you, you do it the wrong way. And, um, and we've gotten better at doing it now. So, um, you, you know, it's really not necessary to do it in the way that, that, you know, 
that many activists do it. And, and we were probably more of like a traditional activist early on. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, with Ameritrade, like just starting with like Ameritrade before, before I got to Fundamental Global, I was, you know, I was very focused on like they should merge with TD Waterhouse and I didn't feel like they were. <laughs> so I wanted it, I wanted them to do that and they weren't doing it. So I, but, but I don't know that I was necessarily like an activist with, with Ameritrade. I just was, you know, was very suggestive of what they should do. Um, you know, fast forward to when we started Fundamental Global, like we actually got involved and filed a 13D on a company called Magnatech. You know, we were much more considered like an activist with Magnatech. Like I, you know, I contemplated a proxy fight and you know, we ended up having a settlement agreement with them. I joined the board. We hired Goldman Sachs. We sold the company to Columbus and Kennan. Um, you know, that was a great investment for us. Um, and but I don't know that looking back on it, that the company, you know, the company's board was was like they were interested, I think, in doing the right thing. And it wasn't necessary for us to be as, you know, as aggressive as we probably were. <laughs> so I think we could have done it in a <clears throat> like looking back on it, we probably could have done it slightly differently. It's just I think you when you're younger, you assume the worst. And as you get better at this, you realize that you can do it in a different way. So, um, you know, similarly with the company called Iteris, um, you know, we bought a big position. They're actually you know, near you in, uh, in, uh, in Santa Ana, California. Uh, we, we bought a big position <clears throat> in, in uh, Iteris. Uh, actually ran a proxy fight. They had, they had a stagger, uh, not a stagger board. They had a, uh, what's called cumulative voting. So you could, um, the way their board was structured, you could actually uh, run a proxy fight. And if you owned like seven or 8% of the company, win one board seat uh, just because you own seven or 8% because uh, it's called cumulative voting. Uh, and that was interesting. So we, we were like, look, like we're going to win one, one or two board seats. You should just put us on the board. Like, why are you having us go through the process of when, you know, running a proxy fight, we're going to win a seat. Like, this is silly. Uh, it was frustrating to us that, that we had to go through that process because we were going to win a seat no matter what anyway, because we could have just voted for ourselves uh, using cumulative voting. Um, but once we were on the board, like we all got along really well and like, you know, they were actually a, a good board and collaborative. And, and I think they would say the same thing about me. Like we ended up being like the, the stock ended up going up a lot. Uh, we, we, they performed well. Um, you know, they ended up doing a lot of the right things. And uh, we, I ended up leaving the board a year later with, you know, a, a several hundred percent gain in the stock and we sold our stock. So it was, it was, you know, a happy ending. And I, I didn't feel like I had to be like, you know, like sharp elbowed. And, and so, you know, that's another example. Um, like we ran a proxy fight against Valentine Strong. Uh, you know, we, we changed the board up. Um, and that's a great example of like when I got there, it's like, oh my goodness, like this is going to be a lot of work. Like we had to do so many things and, um, and, you know, I ended up having to sell subsidiaries and, and reinvent subsidiaries and recreate companies inside of it. And, you know, it was just a lot of work. And now that a lot of that work has, has, you know, come to fruition, you know, we've, we've done some really great things inside of it. The stock price hasn't reacted as well as, as I think it should have. Um, but, yeah, that's the opportunity. And, 
you know, but it, it was a lot of work to, you know, to get there. Uh, now it's like, you know, like, like how do we build that company for the future? Um, and, you know, some way BK technologies, um, was a lot of work. Like we had, there was so much stuff we had to do there. Uh, but now it's like, okay, well, so, you know, they announced a buyback, uh, today or yesterday, today, I think. And, um, that, that's just sort of simple blocking and tackling, right? Like stock goes down, you announce a buyback, um, and, and you buy back stock and, you know, if you have the cash to do so, and they have tons of cash, <laughs> they have something like 14 or 15 million of cash. And, and I think the, st- the market cap got down to, uh, 27 million or 28 million dollar market cap with 15 million of cash and you know, minimal, you know, no debt. So it, it does, didn't make a whole lot of sense where the stock was trading. No, I don't understand why stocks do that, but, but uh, the micro cap space is very inefficient and is conducive to people getting involved. Now I wonder, um, you know, is it easier just for some of these companies to uh, be, you know, either be larger, be private, be sold, you know, we sold Magnatech to Columbus McKinnon. Iteris has gotten bigger. You know, they've they've uh, they've been able to uh, make you know get the company larger. Uh, you know, we think that some of that, that the microcap you know space, like these companies, really need to get larger, and um, you know, or or they should be, you know, perhaps uh, there needs to be ways to minimize the costs. Man, there are so many follow-ups that I have from everything that you just said. Um, so I hope you have like three hours ready to go. Um, so, good. so let's talk about, I mean, clearly, without having to dig in or ask a question about it, you like microcast because there is, you, you've recognized over the years that there is clear fundamental value in some of these businesses. And maybe there's just a bit of hair that you're like, you know what, I've done this a number of times. I know with me, Joe, with our team, we can come in and probably realize maybe some of that value or some of the things that are just in their way. So on that note, I mean, what are what are some of your specific criteria when you're, you know, when you found a Ballantine or a BK BKTI or, you know, or, or, or even a Green First that you initially observed or or was part of some general criteria that you're like, okay, these are things that we like, but we need to go in and, and do a couple more things. You know, love to hear that. Yep, and and I can tell you like some of the initial things that we really like, I would probably go back and say, you know what if I was doing this all over again, like if, if, if people wanted to just, like if we were going to just create like the company that we did with the task of capital, like to do green first in Toronto, I would probably just go create that company today rather than um, trying to like, we know, we now know how we have a team now that we can go create a task of capital rather than trying to, um, you know, go take over a company by being an activist. And I think it's, I think it's so much easier and, and cleaner to do it that way. So if I was going to do it again with some of these, I probably would just create a new one and, um, and that would be an easier way to do it. And I think, you know, if you look at like how Boston Omaha did it, for example, that's basically what they did. In fact, it was a suggestion we made to them was don't, you know, don't go run a campaign against somebody just go and you know take a you know take a four hundred thousand dollar shell and inject cap capital into it and and make it larger and they've Boston Omaha has basically done that and I think they've done a good job with that but you know you don't there's so many of these companies I, I know a lot of people have said like 
well, they like to invest in these companies that are highly levered. Like we won't, we won't invest if they're highly levered. If they have a ton of debt on them, I know you can make a lot of money with, with tremendous leverage, but you can also lose it all. And I, I just am not interested in losing it all. So um, if, 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 it's, if it's excessively levered, like we're generally looking for companies that, that we can buy at a substantial discount uh, to what we think we could, you know, either liquidate it at, uh, you know, that's sort of like the starting point. And then we look for like, you know, some interesting business inside of it that we think, you know, could grow. We look for good management teams or, or something that we could bring in. I can tell you it's actually much harder than, than it, lo- it looks and maybe it doesn't look easy. It's, it, I think it actually looks really hard because um, it, 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 it is very hard to do. And, um, you know, I think that running, a, like people, you know, criticize a lot of the microcap companies out there. I think that the, like being a microcap CEO or CFO or board member, like I, I feel bad for so many of these microcap executives and board members out there because they do take a lot of, like the microcap uh, investor universe is pretty, uh, you know, harsh, you know, compared to, you know, others. And, you know, these guys don't make a ton of money. <laughs> and they take it on the gen, and you know it's it's a t- it's a tough uh, it's a tough uh, you know y- you see a lot of stuff like you, you you're running these businesses. So when when we're when we're we're looking for a business that doesn't have that much trouble, that has you know, you have enough problems in the business already. Like you don't need to have like a massively levered balance sheet. Like you you know you could lose. You don't need like huge customer concentration. You don't need um you know some major issue in the business that 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 could could hurt you so um you know the number one criteria is you know clean balance sheet um huge discount to to where we think we can you know monetize the assets but then ideally um you know a decent business that we think we can grow and maybe we end up selling that business and buying something new with it uh but that that's sort of where we start with like a lot of what we're doing now is um, looking for well-established companies that are, um, you know, run by great companies that have good, good, you know, good businesses that we think we can sort of deploy capital into and get like a, for a reasonable value. Um, that's like that's what we've been spending a lot of time on recently. Got it. I mean, there's no there's no market cap threshold that you're that you won't go over or under. You know, you you look at everything. I mean, Green First, it was what 10 million market cap when you got involved. Um, Valentine, I think, is like sixty million right now. If I'm not yeah, something like that. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You, you're not constrained by that by any means. No, I mean, like, well, like, like I was saying, like, I think some of the most interesting things are taking these. Nothing. You know, we, we can create. We we can create something that's a four hundred thousand dollar, you know, shell and turn it into a multi billion dollar company, right? So, like, we did that with Green First. Green First was. At one point, it had like a four million dollar market cap, and now it's you know, several hundred million dollar market cap. So uh, there's no reason why you can't take these small companies and turn them into to huge companies. Um, so that that that's that's intriguing when you can do that. I think it's it's neat when you can do that. Uh, it's basically you know you've got private companies, private assets that that would benefit from being public, um, you know, of scale. I think that's where where a lot of these micro cap companies would benefit. Like if you have a $50 million market cap company that can merge with a private company that's got several hundred million dollars of revenue, like those are the things that, that some of these micro cap companies should be considering doing, right? Even if they're giving up, you know, s- significant control, 
um, they should be considering like how do we scale by uh, you know really making this business larger. That's basically what we did with Greenfirst. Like we were we were you know forty nine percent shareholders of of Greenfirst, and we went from forty nine percent shareholders to to ten percent share you know ten percent shareholders because we wanted to make it a real company. Right. I mean, so, I mean, you just alluded to my next question a little bit because, you know, when you're, when you're engaging with the potential, with the potential new investment, say, look, this is how we operate. You know, we take a position, we want to be active, active contributors, you know, be, whether it be a board member, something like that, you know, um, it's almost like you have to sell them a little bit, right. On, on you and your expertise. So, I mean, what, what is the main thing that you sell them on? Is it the vision? Is it like, Hey, these are the things that we identified where we can really add value and help grow the business. You know, like what, what is, what's that, what's that initial conversation like that, that maybe at least gets them like, okay, this is pretty interesting. Like we should talk about having Kyle join the board or something like that. You know, what, what, what is that initial conversation like? Well, we we never are like trying to pitch people on like we should join the board, right? So, um, yeah, I, I didn't mean to say it like that. Yeah, like so so like I really I'm on to more boards than I'd like to be, and I'm directionally trying to get off of boards. So like I tried to get off the Green First board, I tried to get off of the iTerrace board, I tried to get off of like I I got off of the Limbach board. Directionally, like I. I don't want to be on board. Sometimes it's important to be on a board because it protects our investments, right? So if, if like I can get Mike Mitchell on a board instead, that's way better for me, right? Because I trust Mike Mitchell to protect my investment as well as me. Um, but it's hard to find the Mike Mitchell that's going to, that because Mike Mitchell, I know he's going to protect my investment well because he's got, he's like all in on, on, on Green First. So I know he's going to be, as focused or more focused on green first than I am. But, you know, to answer your question, the, we, we have a pretty cool team. Like Joe took um, Ameritrade from a $700 million market cap to tens of billions of dollars of market cap through 11 acquisitions and the sale to Charles Schwab. If you look at those 11 acquisitions, it's hard to find one that was a disaster. They were all really good acquisitions. You've got Daytech, you've got National Discount Brokers, you've got TD Waterhouse, you've got Scott Trade, you've got Thinkorswim. You know, you look at sort of the acquisitions he made, like Thinkorswim, Scott Trade, you know, TD Waterhouse. Then he sold it to Charles Schwab. It's like, man, this guy, <clears throat> you know, in financial services, uh, M&A is, is a legend. Um, the stock price did extremely well. He did it. He 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 made tons of money for shareholders. He took a seven hundred million dollar market cap public company and turned it into you know tens of billions of dollars. Sold it to Schwab. Two of like the best financial services mergers in history: Charles Schwab and Ameritrade, and TD Waterhouse and Ameritrade. Uh, you know he's responsible for. Um, you know he's got amazing leadership skills. And then he left and he went to. Coastal Carolina, which was a football team that no one had heard of. They had like very few people in the stands and he made it into like a, a, a you know, like it was like the most, like one of the most watched, uh, you know, teams on in college football last year with like the BYU uh, Coastal Carolina game. And there's some really cool things he's done with, with in, in college football. He did it at Merrill Lynch. He's done it like on multiple organizations. So it's really easy to see how Joe from you know leading organizations to m a to operations and then um 
you know, I, I've had a pretty cool investment career. I worked at T.R. Price. I worked for Steve Cohen. I worked at a Tiger Cub. Uh, I founded Fundamental Global. I actually founded a wealth management company and grew that to $2 billion and sold it. Right. Um, so I've, I've done some interesting things uh, where I know how, I know how the T.R. Prices, the Wellingtons, the Fidelities, the Genesis, how they think. I know how some of the Millenniums, the Citadels, the, the Point 72s think. I know how the Tiger Cubs think, um, you know, so I can kind of help people think about like, well, how is Tierra Price going to think about this? How's Wellington going to think about this? How's, you know, how's capital going to think about this? Uh, I can how, how is the faster money going to think about this? Is that just noise? How do I deal with the sell side? Like, so we've been able to help um, some of these companies think about that. Like from a micro cap perspective, that might not be as important as it is for, like as you're trying to grow into becoming a bigger company, but it's been, it's been more important for like, you know, we don't want these to be smaller companies. We want them to be bigger. Um, so it's like for like a green first, for example, that's relevant because they, you know, they're now a several hundred million dollar market cap company to get to be, you know, a multi-billion dollar company someday, hopefully like that, that would be relevant. Um, certainly for, for like a Haggerty, which is, you know, a company that, you know, HGTY that we just did, uh, you know, or for an OPFI, that's certainly relevant. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, uh, the rest of our team is, is guys who have great, uh, you know, financial ex- expertise, insurance expertise, and so on. So like we've, we've got sort of the whole, you know, quadrant of experience on our team. And it's been, you know, it's been useful. Like we've, we've run public companies. We've been on, board, I've been on, I don't know, 10, 15 boards or something. Right. Yeah, so. no, the, and and the reason I ask is because as some, you know, listen, you know, you know my show, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm, how much I'm in microcaps. You know, I get asked on a daily basis from management, you know, from CEOs of other public companies saying, hey, we're interested in, you know, I want to be a board member. You know, let me know if you have any companies that just, you know, need need board members or something. So I wanted to really, the reason I asked was I really wanted to differentiate what, you know, most folks would deem as like, oh, they're just a professional board sitter to someone who's like really passionate about the business and almost reluctantly taking a board seat in order to realize some of that value, you know, like, cause that, that's a big, yeah. you know, misnomer in the space. So it's, it's interesting because being in our shoes, it's not that fun to be on a board. Because it's it's honestly sure. like a daily position. It's it's actually quite miserable. Um, you know, it's it's a daily position, like where you're where you're thinking about like, hey, here's a position that we have that we're trying to like represent our interests, right? Um, we're we're actively seeking, and when I say our interests, I'm saying like I want shareholders to do well. I get that like sometimes that like when the stocks go down, it's like well that's not happening but that's the whole point of like why i do this is so that stocks go up <laughs> like so you can say oh well you failed because like this stock's gone down or this stock's gone down okay got it you know jab me got it you know that hasn't worked i get when people want to jab us because like something hasn't worked out well i get it but that doesn't mean that we didn't try <laughs> right like we're we're trying to make things work and um it, you know so it's it's ex- it's it's painfully exhausting to be on a board and like be like, like we got to buy back stock. We got to pay a dividend. We have to, you know, we have to cut expenses. We need to grow. Like we need to cut expenses, but we need to grow. It's like, there's just like a really complicated formula for doing all these things. People think like you can just turn around, like snap your fingers and sell, 
sell a company. It's like, you can't, okay? It's very hard to sell a company. It's a, it, it is one of the most num- mind-numbing, exhausting processes to go through. And it's, 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 it's really exhausting. Um, however, I've never had the benefit of doing this, but I imagine it's, it must be fun to be on a board when you don't own the stock <laughs> because like, I, I, but I've never done that. Like I've never had the opportunity to be on, on a board where I don't own the stock because it must just be a dream. Um, you know, just to like sit there and show up four times a year, but that's not us. Like it's not, it's, it's, it's not that fun to be on a board when you are, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% owners. It's like exhausting. Let me ask you, I mean, you say like, it's just exhausting being a board member. It's like a very, very reluctant to even wanting to, to do it, but What's been what's been the most challenging part about you know being on a board, joining a board, being board chairman? Um, love love to hear love to hear all those challenges and maybe how you overcame some of those. You know, look the the biggest you know things that you that that are challenging is that you you really have a complex situation of. You want to recruit the right talent to lead the company. You want to make sure you have the right strategy. Um, at the same, at the same, you, you want to think about acquisitions. You want to think about mergers. You want to think about selling the company um, at the right time. Uh, you want to make sure that the communications uh, of the company are proper. Um, but doing so as a smaller company is hard because if you want to invest money in the company, well, guess what? You have your overheads too high. Right. So your if your overhead's too high, um, you need to cut costs and keep it, it like a really lean budget. Well, if you keep a really lean budget, guess what? It's really hard to grow. So um if you keep a really lean budget, it's really hard to attract talent. So like investors want everything, right? They want an overhead to be like super low. They want the CO to make no money, but they want the CO to be like incredibly talented. Um and they want like fast revenue growth where earnings are, are like crushing numbers, but then they don't want you to like invest, like they want you to invest for growth, but they don't want you to invest for growth. <laughs> like they don't want you to spend any money, right? So it's like a very complicated formula that's almost like you, you basically have to spend money to grow um, and you have to invest to get good executives, um, you know, attracting the right executives can be challenging. So, um, you know, convincing the right executive, like, Hey, this is a good opportunity versus, you know, working at your fortune 500 company, you know, the fortune, like if you work at like Facebook or Google, uh, you're making a lot of money as a, you know, as a middle management, you know, Facebook's paying people one and a half million dollars in like pretty reasonable, you know, or Google or like they're, they're not in huge positions. Um, so try and attract that talent to come work at a microcap company as the CEO, right? And it's like, well, I'm making you know a million dollars a year at Facebook or Google or or wherever, but I want you to come and work here. But oh, by the way, the microcap universe wants me to pay you two hundred fifty thousand dollars salary. And it's just like, what? That's like what my assistant makes, or you know, like like not mine, but that, that's what that's what they might say to you, right? Um, so like that's, th- those are the types of challenges you deal with is getting the right talent, getting, you know, um, you know, getting board members that are, that, that have skin in the game, 
right? So um, like that want to be just as active as you are. So, um, you know, that's why like, like I like to do a lot of this work, um, but, you know, it'd be great to have people doing it with alongside of us. Right. But, but not in like a, not in like a nefarious way. Like can't like, like it'd be nice if people wanted to do it like in a, in a thoughtful way, like, like actually help us like create value for these companies. So it's great when like there's people that want to own shares that want to do it like thoughtfully and, and want to help us like, you know, make, you know, make money for shareholders um, and not be, you know, difficult. Like, so like, like it's hard to find, um, you know, like it's hard to not be the only one sort of carrying like, you know, the weight of like the board. So, um, you you face a lot of that. Um, the things come up with these public, like, I think, uh, what is the company that owns QVC? I think had a fire in North Carolina yep. this week. And, uh, you know, I was asked a couple of times, like, what do I think about that? And I was saying like, look, like things like this happen, right. It's just part of business. Like I, I get that, that it's challenging, but the company probably has business interruption insurance, but guess what? Like I guarantee the board of that company had to meet this weekend to talk about it. Right. And it had, and it, and like, unfortunately, like, you know, you have to, you, the first things you have to think about are like, well, like are our employees okay? What are we going to do about those employees? Like those are the f- most important topics are like, but then you also have to think about like, well, what about our customer orders? Like, you know, how do we deal with our customer orders? Our employee welfare is the most important thing. Beyond that, how do we deal with our, our you know, meeting our, our customer orders? What are we going to do? Like, do we have insurance? There's so many different things that go on. Like it's, it's December, what is today? December 20th or whatever. Like, are we, how do we get an attorney on the phone? Like, you know, that's going to work on this over the next two or three days. Like there's, there's so many things that I'm sure that company unfortunately is having to deal with. And I feel, I feel terrible for them, but that's part of business. And that's part of like companies are dealing with those types of things all the time. And from the outside, you don't, you don't have to, re- you don't realize the things that people deal with. So. By the way, for it's December 21st for anybody that wants to give us a hard time. We're recording this on uh, Tuesday, December 21st. But, you know, on those lines, I mean, I, just a fundamental question about, you know, who you are and your personality. Do you love it? You must. You must love dealing with these challenges because, like, how else, why else would you put yourself through the pain and the torture in some in some of these cases? Because, I mean, it, I can only imagine it, it's, it can be a freaking pain in the ass some of these times. I, I love it, but I also feel like an immense sense of responsibility and I'm like, I, I'm a committed, responsible person. So I feel like um, I'm not the kind of person that like bails on anything that I started. And I feel like I started, um, I started to create value for these companies. I'm going to finish creating value for these companies. Um, and that's what I'm going to do, right? So it's a pain but I'm going to like make sure that like what I started is, is, is successful at the end. Um, if I, if I can do it. <laughs> right. So like, I'm, I'm very committed to making sure that happens. And because it's, it's a passion of mine, like it is like, I am passionate about making sure that um, like 
I started something, I, I really want to see this be successful. Like Magnatech was really easy. Like we, I, I got on the board, we sold the company. It went very smoothly. Iteris was very easy. Some of these are harder. They don't always go perfectly. Um, but I'm going to like the, like I'm going to make sh- like it is my passion to do what I can to make sure that, you know, if I can, you know, now I'm not Superman. So like if things happen that I can't, you know, that I can't fix then then that, that is what, what it is, but I'm going to do my best to, to fix everything I can. It, you know, in, in all your experience, you know, thus far, uh, you know, working in the microcap space, being a board member, board chairman, um, wh- what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most or, or maybe even changed your career and how you think about the way in which you're approaching doing investments? Sorry, I always um, save the hardest question for the end, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I think that, um, I think that when you, when you realize like the people involved in these companies, like, I, I think like a lot of times, um, a lot of times investors on the outside, like see everything like in a 10 K and a 10 Q and they're really focused on like, you know, numbers and, um, but they don't realize like there's people, there's like a family behind like every decision you make and you, um, you need to make the right decisions, uh, for the business, but you also need to like realize like there's, there's, um, you know, there's a community involved and like sometimes the best decision for the company is doing the right thing for the, you know, for the employees or for the customer that doesn't immediately affect the bottom line like that day but it might have like a really good impact on the company, you know, two years from now, because you did the right thing for the company. And I think that's something that I've learned over the last couple of years that when you consistently try and do the right thing, um, you know, it might not be apparent to people on the outside. Uh, and, but, but um, you know, people that, that you do the right thing for see it. And uh, over time, you know, you, you you get the benefits of that. So I, I I think that sometimes the obvious like, you know, decision is not always in you know perfectly in a spreadsheet. I think it usually usually is like I've always guided my decisions from a spreadsheet. And I and I think that spreadsheets are critical to making every decision. However, I think that what you find is that sometimes like doing the right thing for a customer is just as important as like, you know, um, you know, like if, if that product was that you delivered them wasn't perfect, sometimes it's the better thing to like give them the right product, uh, even though it might hurt your bottom line that quarter. And um, it pays huge dividends down the road. So. Very good. So let me ask before, before we, we, you know, we're kind of rounding the bend here, but I mean, is there anything that, that we missed or that, you know, as part of your experience, working with microcaps and doing what you do that maybe you'd like our audience to know about, or do you think we've covered pretty much everything? Yeah, I think that the microcap space is, is interesting. Like it's a, it's a neat community. There's a lot of people that know each other. I think the, the, the people that invest in microcaps do a lot of good work. Generally, I think that they, they sometimes jump to conclusions too fast. 
um, about people, about companies, about fundamentals. Um, I think they have some preconceived notions about companies from 10 years ago or five years ago that can evolve and change. So they need to be open-minded about that. Um, I think that the microcap universe is neat because, um, you know, unlike the industry driven, you know, multi-billion dollar company, you know, universes of, uh, that are, that are, are very, you know, inflated in my opinion. I think that you can find some incredibly deep values. You can have stocks that were, uh, trading at $10, you know, three months ago and trading at $2 today. And, and there has to be some, when you have, you know, hundreds of stocks that, that are down 80%, there has to be some value in there somewhere, right? Where you can make money. So I think that that's what, what draws people to, to the microcaps. Um, I do think that there is a, a pretty interesting opportunity to, um, you know, take these microcaps and make them much bigger. So like, it's one thing I'm kind of passionate about is like, is there a way to take some of these microcaps and, and merge like a $50 million market cap or a $30 million market cap with, you know, a $200 million revenue private company or a $500 million revenue, like, like we did with green first. Like, I think that that was a pretty neat deal. And I think it, it really takes it to the next level. Cause I think that having scale of a 200, $300 million revenue company, like, like, you know, getting it to those sizes makes a huge difference. Like, I think that's a much more investable company now. Um, and I think that that, you know, you can get sell side coverage, you can start to, uh, you, you can have the resources to hire better executives. Like, I think you really do make a big difference when you start to get into the several hundred million dollar market gap. So I, I find it interesting to try and take some of these smaller companies and get them bigger. And I think it's something for microcap investors to think about. I think that thinking about pink sheet OTC versus NYC American and NASDAQ is an interesting topic that people don't talk about enough. Cause I think that um, like some of these companies that just put out press releases with numbers, you know, like it's cute that like people find it attractive that like companies save money on their financials, but it's also probably pretty dangerous um, that they're not getting you know, like real audit opinions or, um, you know, I, th I think that, that there is some value in, in like the money that's being spent on, on, uh, on real audit opinions and, and being, you know, complying with like NYSC standards and as they standards. So like, I, I think some of that stuff's in, you know, th there might be benefits to going to the pink sheets or OTC in terms of like cost savings. And I'm not completely against those things. I'd, I'd love to hear sort of the positives and negatives of those. But uh, I think that people maybe don't, um, they, they, they maybe get too in the, uh, in the uh, weeds on some of these uh smaller companies in terms of allowing companies to do things that, that are, you know, pushing the lines of, of, uh, of, of uh, good financial reporting stuff. So, you know, we're trying to bring a little bit of like, qual like I'd like to bring like more quality to some of the microcaps, you know, and, and, and maybe not have uh, the reputation that, that all these microcaps, you know, have. And maybe that means that we need to go up, up market cap a little bit. Absolutely. No, listen, that that right there is going to be a topic for probably our next conversation, I, I would assume. You know, but I, another question I had for you, actually, I have two more questions before I let you go here today. So the first one is, you know, how do you think about your own reputation now? You know, you've, you've, you're part of all on a few boards. I've said this a lot of times now, you know, like what, what do you think folks think 
when they see, you know, all right, Kyle and his team are coming in, they're taking a position, you know, uh, I'm getting a call from FGI right now. Like, uh, here we go. You know what? Not, uh Oh, I don't mean to project it. I, uh, Cause I know you're not like that, but like, but like, what do you think in terms of how you're seen now in the space or maybe what and maybe retail investors think like, Oh, Kyle's going into that. You know, what does this mean? So, you know, it's interesting. Like, the, the reason I got involved in Twitter was because I, I felt like um, I, was, I was really looking for a way to communicate with like larger audiences um, where if, some, like, if I wanted to communicate with people, um, I, could, I could actually have one way that I could reach larger audiences and say, hey, if you wanna, if you wanna know what I'm talking about, just go to, you know, at case or Monero. And you know, if I want to post a sub stack, I can post it there. If I want to post anything, I can just post it there. It's just the easiest way to sort of consolidate. Um, I think that um, Twitter tends to attract, um, you know, like a lot of positive things. So you, you, you can really reach large audiences, but it also makes it such that, you know, you, you, you know, like people like Elon Musk or Kathy Woods, or, you know, like I feel, you know, I feel like you re- like the, the larger your, your Twitter account gets, like they're, they're the extreme case, obviously. Um, they've really, they, they get like lots of positive feedback and they get like the most tremendous negative feedback too. Right. And, and maybe they bring some of that on. And, you know, I, when I first got involved in Twitter, maybe I brought some negative stuff on myself. Um, unnecessarily because I didn't really understand how to use Twitter that well. And I was kind of just learning. Um, but, you know, in terms of like when we invest in a company, I think initially like we, like we started to make like some of like the activist hot lists and stuff. And I think people started to get bothered by us being a shareholder. Like, like I remember when we bought, like when we filed, filed a 13D on a company, like they, they flip out and, you know, immediately start putting in defenses and, you know, that surprised me. So like, we've tried to take like a little bit more of, you know, if we need to be difficult, we, we can be difficult, but um, I've tried not to be viewed that way. Like, I think, um, you know, we'd rather be much more constructive to, as a shareholder than, than viewed as someone that's going to just rip things apart. Cause there's, there's really no value to the company of coming in and like ripping things apart. Like if you want to, if you want to, you know, have a conversation with us about one of our companies, have a conversation with us. Like, we're not gonna, we're not, like, I have no interest in, like, I just, all I want to do is make these stocks go up. Uh, so if there's a way to make them go up that you think so, like, give me a call. Like, I'll talk very thoughtfully about it. Like, I don't want to, uh, like, there's no reason to be a jerk about things. Um, and I think that that's, that's one misnomer that people have with, with, uh, with other companies is like, they, they think that like if we're coming in, like maybe like we're going to be jerks. And like, I just don't think it's necessary to be a jerk. Like I think you, it, it ends up costing the company money and it hurts shareholders, you know, all around. So, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of activist shareholders have learned that over time that you, you, you try to be, you know, thoughtful initially. And I think that that's a better approach. Um, and in terms of our reputation, like, you know, Joe Mobley has got an amazing reputation. Um, you know, I've worked at a number of different places where I've had, you know, a great reputation, obviously, at T.R. Price, and I've had, you know, 
good rep like I think most people that have worked with me would say uh good things about me. Um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, there's there's people on Twitter that like to sort of nag and that is what it is, but so probably just bad market timing <laughs> for the yeah. most, maybe for the most part. Um, so Kyle, I, I apologize for even saving this question until, you know, this late in the interview, but I, but I mean, this is, I, like I said, I wish I've had, like, we have four hours here, but you know, I got to ask you about management, man. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've come in and, and, you know, with the best expectations of like, all right, we believe in this management team, but you know, the, Sometimes it doesn't work out, you know, what, what, what are some of the things you look for and have you had experiences where you had to, you know, replace management or bring in folks that, that you believe in, you know, like what, what's been that experience like? You know, so we've unfortunately had to fire some management teams. I personally had to do it. Uh, it's never fun. Uh, I, I'll tell you, usually, um, you know, I mentioned that, that microcap investors want you to uh, pay uh, these executives as little as possible and have as talented as people as possible. Uh, I think that what I found is that you can attract some good talent um, to these smaller companies with equity uh, and, and reasonable cash compensation. So like, you know, pay for performance. And I think that that's a reasonable way for us to do it. Uh, but we've had to bring in, you know, we've, we've had to bring in new management teams at, at, at almost every company. Um, and that's that's just is what it is. Like many of these smaller companies uh, don't have the greatest management teams. It's hard to attract talent, so uh, it's not unusual for us to uh, you know to to change out the management team. Um, you know, in a in a perfect world and sort of on a go forward basis, I think management has become like one of the more important things that we look at and we say like we really want like we don't want to spend time you know, changing management because it's it's a time consuming process. But we've we've worked with some great headhunters and we've worked with some great people in our network, um, you know, to find, find good executives for the right role. Uh, but, but over time it's inevitable, like, you know, whether it's uh, bringing in a new CEO or, or CTO or, or CFO uh, uh, or chief operating officer over time, um, you know, just replacing management can have like a huge, huge difference. And uh, we've done it. And I think w one of the secret sauces that we found is that, uh, particularly in microcaps is like paying people, you know, significantly with equity uh, so that, that when the stock works, um, you know, they get paid well, uh, has been, has been, uh, you know, a good, a, a good way to go about things. I mean, do you tend to avoid founder CEOs? Because that's a much more difficult path. You know, like, let's say you're going to that company, you know, you see some things you like, but you know, you're dealing with the founder CEO, maybe that's, you know, taking it to the, best it can possibly be to their capabilities. And you clearly see that maybe some brings fresh, fresh blood in might reinvigorate or change some things up. Like, do you, do you tend to avoid that because it's just way more work and a lot more just stuff involved, I guess you'd say, or um, I mean, are you not scared of those opportunities as well? I think founder CEOs are some of the best. Like I think. Agree. No doubt. Gene that yeah, I think I think there's a special gene that goes into being a founder of a company and and building something, and it's it's like you know sort of your 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 third child or a fourth child in terms of um, you know like some people take on positions as a job and some people take on positions as like building something because it's like their child and founders 
founders build something like it's their child. And, you know, there's nothing better than having a executive that treats the company like it's, you know, like, like they will walk through a wall to make it successful. And uh, I think founder CEOs are like that. And I think there's nothing better than having someone that will do whatever it takes to make it successful, whether that's two in the morning or Saturday, Sunday, you know, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, like whatever it takes, like they will make it happen. And, um, you know, putting, you know, it's like when, when you have young children and you have to change their diapers at two in the morning, um, you don't think twice about it. And when you have, uh, when you have a founder led CEO, they don't think twice about it. Like there's, there's no question that they're going to do the right thing for the company when they're, when it's their baby. And when it's a, uh, when it's someone that you brought in, like, you know, they it start, it, it's just not their thing. They might move on. Like, it's just not as, so it's hard to find like that special chemistry with somebody when it's not their thing. Um, I like, no, sometimes you do and you get lucky. Uh, but I, I, I really like founder, founder led companies. Um, I think they're great. I think that they get, unnecessarily a bad rep and i think that uh you know sometimes it's hard to find the founder that can take it to the next level uh you know sometimes they're good at getting it to a certain size uh but for the size of companies we're talking about um founder led ceos are great and and sometimes it's as much as like bringing in like a a great president or a great coo to help them uh sort of professionally manage the company uh but but you know that's my thoughts on it Absolutely. And the re- and I and I asked it from the perspective more of like when you've had to maybe, you know, go in and you knew going in, like we might have to change management teams. And like it just maybe being a situation where it was a founder CEO where you're like, you know, I, I like that 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 situation might sometimes be a little bit more difficult, you know, than say uh, you know, you came in and it was already a hired gun there, right? Um, all right. So I know I've been saying this you know, before I let you go here today, you know, you've given some great advice already for folks that uh, may not know you, maybe considering wanting to be more active in some of their investments. But, you know, for, for those maybe that are new to microcaps and the current environment that we're in right now, you know, what, what, what advice would you have for some of those folks out there that, you know, I mean, look, microcaps have been getting crushed a little bit uh, in the last few months here. So, I mean, love to hear your advice there. You know, I think that um, people would that are interested in in doing some of this would be better off like learning the companies before they invest. Um, you know, spending time doing their homework, reading the 10Ks and the 10Qs. Um, you know, actually doing like much more homework than just reading the 10Ks and 10Qs. Like really getting to know the companies, um, not going into it with the idea of like trading. So. You know, like when I when I go into an investment, like when the stock goes down, I get excited because we buy more. We don't get angry, uh, or we don't even contemplate like selling the shares. Uh, so I think that I think that if you buy shares and then when it goes down, you sell shares. It's like, but that's fine. But it just shows you just didn't do your homework or you didn't have, you know, um, you know, if, if these stocks are going to go down at some point. Uh, you know, given the nature of microcap investing, like there's going to be big drawdowns in microcaps. Um, that, that's just, that is a, the nature of microcap investing is there's big drawdowns. And I, I don't know of a microcap investor that hasn't experienced like a massive drawdown and you have to be ready to buy 
and uh, and position yourself with it and, and have the conviction to do so. And that doesn't mean that you should just buy blindly. It means you should do your homework. And if you don't, if you haven't done your homework, then you shouldn't be involved in them. So, um, you know, maybe you should wait for them to have big drawdowns before you buy. So. All right. I think that's a good place to end it. So listen, before I let you go here today for compliance purposes, just you mentioned a few names. So just want to make sure that we uh, address that real quick. So um, wanted to check if you are uh, obviously just for, I think, current positions, you're currently a shareholder still in uh, in Green Green First. Uh, I think you mentioned that you sold out of iTerris, um, FG Financial, of course, Ballantyne, uh, BK Technologies, just to start with those, uh, are you currently a shareholder in all so, or sold? Yeah, I'll make it easy for you. So I, uh, we, I own six stocks and um, those six stocks were, were very large shareholders of them. Um, and other than those six stocks, I don't own anything besides cash and my primary residence, um, a, a car and a pontoon boat. So I have six stocks that are bound on strong, which is BTN, BK Technologies, BKTI, FG Financial, which is FGF, Green First Force Products, which is GFP on the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, OpFi, which is OPFI, and Haggerty, which is HGTY. I own six stocks. I have all my money in those six stocks, and I have cash, and I have a house, and I have a car and a pontoon boat, and that's my portfolio so on so all right firstly thank you for that last question on the pontine boat what's what's biting right now are you fishermen i would assume you're fishing i don't i don't fish that much like you know we 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 live on a lake uh in charlotte so uh i'll go out on the uh i'll go out and i'll catch some bass but bass okay uh, it's a it's a good it's a good bass, bass fishing boat gotcha all right man well kyle this has been so much fun. Where can our audience go and find more information on, uh, on, on Fundamental Global, follow you on social media, the whole bit? Yeah, I'm, at, you know, I'm on Twitter at KCRManera or FundamentalGlobal.com. So. Very cool. All right. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And uh, I'm really looking forward to our next chat. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.